Hi, I'm Carl Franklin, and I'm here to talk you through my film, Devil in a Blue Dress, to share with you some of the experiences, some of the filmmaking behind the scenes, and just, you know, some general stories about making this movie. I've got a west side, baby. She lives way across town. Now, we had, uh, when we were trying to decide upon the, uh, the opening credits, you know, what the background would be, et cetera. People had different ideas, and there was a suggestion that we do something that would really spell film noir with maybe articles, you know, smoke, cigarette, whatever, fedora and all of that, you know, and an ashtray, maybe a gun. And, you know, everything that seemed to be suggested uh, felt a little too conventional and felt like we'd already seen it before. And so we thought, you know, it'd be interesting um, to take advantage of something that had more of a, you know, a feel of the times. Uh, and in 1948, there were the WPA artists who were still at work, and Archibald Motley was one. And this film, this uh, uh, piece of art that you're seeing right now is called Bronzeville at Night. It was painted in 1948. It's actually a, a, a shot of a, of a Chicago street scene. But we thought it would work for Los Angeles, too. Uh, and the sound, the song you're hearing is West Side Baby by um, Aaron T-Bone Walker, who was a huge star in 1948. Uh, he used to hit the splits and put the guitar behind his back, and, you know, girls were throwing underwear on the stage to him and all of that. And he was a predecessor of uh, some of the rock and roll stars that would follow later. In fact, what you'll see in this film and what you will hear are some of the early... Uh, I guess you could say precursors to rock and roll. It was called shout and jump music, uh, and it was born on Central Avenue, which is where a lot of uh, this film will take place. And we thought it was cool if we came down and kind of ended the sequence on a girl in a blue dress. We we don't know how many people actually picked up on that, but it was our own little inside kind of gag. I actually thought it was a drag that I had my name in so many places screened by, by, played by Carl Franklin, directed by Carl Franklin, instead of just written and directed by, but they're union rules because it was an adaptation that forced me to have to do that. Now, one of the things that I wanted to do, and the reason why I started um, early on by showing the hustle bustle of Central Avenue, and we'll, we'll come back and forth a few times to street scenes, was to capture the excitement of that time that so many people who had lived through it had experienced. And it was also another device to open up the movie. Uh, we only had about $22 million to make this film. And by cutting in and out of a few street scenes, it does a remarkable thing. I had noticed that in, uh, um, uh, Les Enfants du Paradis, the uh, Michel Carnet film, where they used a street scene over and over again to just open up the film three or four times, cutting in and out. Now, this scene was originally the first scene in the film, and it was a total scene, but we discovered that somehow it didn't give enough momentum, it didn't give enough of a signature to the, uh, to the film. You didn't get kicked into it well enough to really know where you were. 
So we only extracted a piece of it and went back actually to something very similar to the, the structure of the book for the opening, which was right in Joppy's bar. My name's not Fella. Huh? My name's not Fella. And we treated it as a flashback, which was kind of the way it was treated in the book. Jimmy Witherspoon's ain't nobody's business. When we first shot this scene, um, Tom Sizemore coming through the door, is the first time, I guess, that I actually began to think that this was in some ways a modern Western. Just uh, coming through the door reminded me of something I'd seen in, you know, the Western genre over and over again, actually. Easy. Come on over here. And that's what I want you to meet. Now, Denzel actually does not smoke cigarettes, but he inhaled um, for this project, and he, uh, he assured me that he wouldn't get addicted. I was a little worried about that, actually. Mr. Albright and me go way back to before the war. Back, back when I was still in the flag game. Yeah. Ever seen this guy fight? Yeah. Huh? Every time Joppy Shad stepped in the ring, you knew he was going to see some real knockdown drags. You will see us several times use alcohol in, in the uh, film as uh, kind of a Faustian symbol, taking the drink with the devil, and also just as a social grace that seemed to be so much a part of the 40s and the 30s, the cigarettes, the booze. Now, one of the things that we were trying to do by exposing that Easy was from Houston and that Joppy was from Houston was to reveal to people because this was as sociological as it was dramatic, where these people came from. That area, Central Avenue, Los Angeles, populated mainly by people from Texas and Louisiana during the war and after the war. So it's like the big city having its uh, effects on uh, country people. I usually look down to see if my fly is open. But all the way home, all Easy's car was a 1946 Pontiac. I first came out to Los Angeles when I got home from the war in Europe. With $300 in my and we gave him a 1946 car to show his uh, desire to become part of the kind of up-and-coming, you know, middle class of America. The American dream was being sought after by a lot of people. We had just won the war. We were prosperous for the first time in this history of this country as a world power. And people were moving to places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City, all the port cities, because that's where the work was. I guess maybe I just loved owning something. And it leads into one of the main themes in the film was someone trying to hold on to their piece of the American dream as he walks up to his house. I'm gonna knock down some of them trees I'll in the back leave my trees alone. I ain't gonna take leave my trees. Get on. 
The woodcutter was a character whom I, I added, uh, who was not in the book. He's played by a fine actor named Shabaka Henley, a fine stage actor. Uh, we'll come back to this character a little later because he has a specific purpose in all of this. And we can see our man is a little buffed here, Denzel. He had a gym on the set. He'd come to the set about five o'clock in the morning and work out before his, uh, about an hour before he was due into makeup. Denzel's kind of a method actor, you know. He wanted his wardrobe a month before the film. Uh, he wore it around in the street so he could get used to the wardrobe. Carried pictures of himself as a, as a kid and of uh, the character Mouse and talked about, and that was an inspiration for their childhood that, uh, or it was inspired by a picture uh, of two children that he said were the, the, it was a childhood shot of he and Mouse. This is actually an apartment house on Sycamore Street in uh, Hollywood. So. Again, the liquor and the Faustian contract, the drink with the devil. It depends on what kind of job it is. And Tom Sizemore, who's, uh, I think, does a wonderful job with Do It Albright. He picked up about 30 pounds to give himself some age, give himself some weight. We grade him a little bit to give him some age, because actually Tom at the time was only 30 years of age. Beyonce and Todd Carter. She's been gone two weeks. It upset the poor man so much, he stopped running for mayor. I never laid eyes on him. That's a shame. See, Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. Actually, there was a lot more to this sequence originally. We wanted to show the descent of the character. We had him walk across the courtyard, the whole confrontation with the security guard, the walking down the stairs into the belly of the uh, machine room of the apartment to give it a sense of that subterranean world as if he was descending into the Faustian territory. But it took so long that we cut it. $100. I pay in advance. $100. I tried to make the same point with the, with the drink and with the money. Seduction. Joppy tells me he used to frequent a legal club down on 89th and Central. Hey, John. Somebody saw a daffy there a few nights ago. And with his, uh, champion aircraft jacket and uh, work shirt. He is everything but a uh, film noir detective, which was part of the way we turned the film noir on its ear. Uh, Philip Marlowe, of course, would have been cynical and would have been much more at home in this world, but this was a story of a man becoming a detective, of becoming cynical. Again, we're here at Central Avenue at night. This was shot on Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles, I believe on 4th Avenue. And we, the, that supermarket you'll, across the street, which was John's Bar, which we'll, we will get inside of later in, in this shot, uh, actually was just a big storage space. You know, you couldn't even see inside of boxes stacked up all over the place.
Central Avenue at that time in 1948 was a lot like Harlem, was in the Harlem Renaissance. People from all over the world. Hattie Mae is played by a wonderful actress, L. Scott Caldwell. Got to remember the police in Los Angeles were under the direction of William Parker, who was a, uh, according to uh, City of Courts, a self-avowed white supremacist. Junior's played by David Fontenot, New York actor, stage mainly. Zapatas are a fictitious Mexican cigarette, primarily, you know, cheap cigarettes. This club was fashioned after a club, and I don't remember the name of it, but there supposedly on Central Avenue was a club uh, that was atop a drugstore. And a lot of those speakeasies were like that at the time. You walk into some place that was, uh, you know, a grocery store or a drugstore or whatever, and there'd be all kinds of things happening in the back. Just like you didn't help Mouse kill his stepfather. Hey, easy. Did you help him kill his stepbrother, too? And you had to know somebody to get inside. Russell Clark and Tony Selznick uh, choreographed our dances. The gentleman singing was the lead singer of the Bus Boys. You may remember him. Good Rockin' Tonight was a big hit by Winoni Harris in 1948. Elvis would record that song, I believe, in 1954, and it would become a hit again. But rock and roll was already beginning to, to happen in Central Avenue in 1948. <laughs> We shot this downtown in an artist's loft and created a uh, bar. I think he actually rents it out to a lot of uh, uh, film companies. Albert Hall plays uh, Odell. Jannard Burks as Dupree. And Lisa Carson as Nicole. Sizzling hot. In the book, he's described as having a 10-gallon hat, uh, the uh, Dupree character. We opted to go for something a little more conservative, that, but as outlandish still, just as outlandish. Sharon Davis, our wardrobe mistress, uh, came up with this outfit for Dupree. No. Corella got herself a job at the phone company. That's right. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Ain't hiring no man's down here. Now, Odell is a church-going man. Um, 
and there is uh, the sense of guilt that you will feel about his presence always. He's very, he's, there's an old saying, nervous as a hoe in church. And he is, as you can see, very out of place in the bar, but uh, I, I would think his presence is for medicinal purposes only. One last shot. We had such enthusiastic extras in dancing and wearing the wardrobe. Everybody seemed to be so excited about participating in this project. Sorry if you go. Sorry if I stay too. Be night already. Daphne's sleep by now, so. We can't get none of that tonight. Go around here telling everybody, Dahlia. Daphne. Do you know <clears throat> Coretta's apartment or house was supposed to uh, be in South Central Los Angeles. It was actually filmed in Boyle Heights in L.A. When we interviewed Lisa for the role of Coretta, we actually stopped our search right after that. We realized we had found her. All right, easy, all right. Dupredo fell asleep on me. You just gonna walk out on me like I was dog food, huh? What? Girl, what you talking about? Now, come on. Coretta, your man is in the next room. I think the qualities that make her so seductive are that, uh, at the same time that she is, you know, playing around on a, her boyfriend, she has so much charm and there's such a kind of, uh, I guess you could say, a light touch that it almost makes it okay with her. <laughs> well, what if he was to hear something? He's asleep. <laughs> There was some concern as to whether or not with Easy uh, making love to Coretta in the next room with her boyfriend sound asleep, whether he would be so unsympathetic that he would be unredeemable. But again, the humor of the scene, we felt, might take the curse off of some of that. Come on, 
Again, it was true to the book. All you're doing is nosing after my friend, Daphne. Huh? That, that, oh, oh, oh. The art director is Catherine Peters, who uh, was responsible a lot for the furnishings inside of the room. Gary Frutkoff was our production designer, and I think he did a wonderful job. When we were in preparation for uh, the art direction for this film, I pulled um, about 90 photos from a collection of uh, an homage to the people of color in Los Angeles that was being done at the uh, L.A. Public Library, the main office, uh, the main branch downtown that was burned down when it was reopened. It was called Shades of L.A. And there were about 500 photos that dealt with uh, the African-American presence in Los Angeles from the late 1890s through the 1950s. And, I went on hitting a spot until just and we used that as a, a source I later to on uh, had found out as much about what get the look that we got. As, I had found out about Daphne Monet. as it turned out, Todd Carter wasn't the only man in Daphne's life. She was also shacking up with some small... Now, the timing on the color, as you see it, is much brighter than it was in the film. Uh, they do that because uh, they were concerned about television sets you know, where you will actually, I guess, lose some luminance or whatever. But, of course, Tak Fujimoto's idea, which was the richness that we experienced in the film, was much darker. It was easy money. Too easy. And we didn't use a lot of filters. Tried to control the colors in the frame more so than to um, filter it out. Because I wanted to make sure that even though it was a period piece, that there was still immediacy and urgency. And diffusion has a tendency to take that away. I think that filter was called hot chocolate that we used a lot. I might be wrong on that. <laughs> this neighborhood is in a place called Jefferson Park in Los Angeles. It's actually between La Brea and Crenshaw and Jefferson and Adams. And pretty much remains, still looks the same as it did 40 years ago. I like shooting through uh, thresholds and watching characters disappear into areas that we cannot follow. I think it enhances the mystery at times. Not necessarily the mystery in terms of the story, but the, the mystery of film. You come on out here to Malibu. Meet me at the Fisherman's Pier at the hamburger stand in an hour, okay? Malibu, look, Mr. Albright, I don't... Somehow I think it, it sparks the imagination a little more.
Now in the book, uh, the trip out to Santa Monica is described in great detail because at that time, uh, Santa Monica was, you know, um, not built up. It was a lot of orange groves. It was undeveloped and it was an area strictly off limits to black people. And so the fear element of going out to a place like Santa Monica or Malibu was uh, uh, pretty substantial among black people at that time. This is actually the Malibu Pier. And they kept our sign for a while. I think they've since removed it, but they kept it up for a while, the big uh, uh, archway which we built for that area. It's actually a bait and tackle shop on the right, not a cafe. It's pretty out here, huh? Yeah, it's all right. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. Where are you from? Texas. Do they have an ocean in Texas? Hey, Barbara. Gulf, man. Gulf in Texas. Barbara, where are you? I think your friends are looking for me. I don't care. My sister brought me here because my parents made her. All she wants to do is make out with Herman and smoke cigarettes. Hey, man. What are you doing out here? Hey, what's going on? Leave us alone, Herman. We're just talking. Listen, uh, we don't need you talking to her, okay? Hey, I hey. said leave us alone. We're just talking about the ocean. This nigger's trying to pick up on Barbara. That's what's wrong. Hey, Phil, what's wrong with you? Got a problem? Now, in this scene, we introduce for the first time yet another fear uh, for our character, whose premise, central premise in a lot of ways, is overcoming fear. But this particular fear is fear of what he might become, and it comes from his background in the war. He clearly doesn't want to attack these, yes, these kids. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Sorry. Yes, sir, I am. You're sorry enough? Yes, sir. Yeah. And prove it. Come on, prove it. Show him. Oh, me. Suck his Peter. You son of a bitch. I think he's got the... The young man who has the gun on him right now is a guy named Kai Lennox, and he's an excellent swing dancer. Okay, okay, okay. Don't shoot me, please. Now go on. Go on. <laughs> and one of the nicest people you'll meet. Son of a gun. You're gonna do it, aren't you? Sick bastard. <laughs> oh, Get the hell out of here. I'll call the cops. I'll kill you. Hurry up, man. Come on. This is one more step down into the subterranean world of corruption and immorality that Easy is finding himself into, going into. But there's no turning back. Hang on, where? Over to the Skylar apartment, Skylar 83rd. Skylar 83rd? Frank Green, we know about this guy. He's a gangster, hijacker, looking cigarettes, supposed to be pretty good with a knife. You ever see him in action? No, I just heard about him. It's interesting what Gary Frutkoff was able to do that we were somehow, we somehow, those wonderful sets that you'd see in the films in the 30s and 40s which gave a certain kind of ambiance, we wanted to have some of that. And we knew that we didn't want to shoot on a set because the sets don't breathe. But it's kind of a heightened sense of, uh, uh, the, I guess, sets that were inspired by that German neorealism 
Period. Mr. Rollins, I'm Detective Miller. Mason, what? turn around, put your hands on the top. Come with us. Where? You'll see. Well, why are you arresting me? You'll see. Look, I got a right to know why you're arresting me now. You got a right to fall down, break your face. You got a right to come with me. Come on. John Rosillas, who's uh, taking Denzel out now, is a very good friend of Denzel's, actually, and a former boxer. Now, this was shot in the old LA, um, LAPD, Los Angeles uh, Police Department, which uh, is abandoned now. It's, it's vacant. We actually were able to use the exterior and the interior in the same place. Take those cuffs off if you want to cooperate. Yes, sir. I'm cooperating. Turn around. One of our crew members uh, remarked that he had spent time in that jail when he was 16 years of age. He was around uh, 60 years of 60 years old at the time. This morning about 5 a.m. What do you mean? It means this morning. I was I was out drinking. I carried a friend into his house and. I don't know, I could have been on my way home. I don't know, I ain't, I ain't looking at no clock. Oh! Yeah! The clock! Drinking at 89th and Central, legal club called John's. Man, what is going on? Yes, well, answer, Zico. You got a lot bigger troubles than busting Look, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What we're talking about is taking your black ass out behind the station. Detective Miller's played by Bo Starr. Sit down. Now, what time did you leave Greta James' house this morning? Around 5, 5.30, I guess. You go back later in the day? No, sir, I did not. You and Dupree Bouchon, do you have words over Miss James? Words? You heard him. You heard him. Did you two argue over Coretta James? Oh, we didn't argue about Did you argue over no, Coretta James? No, we didn't argue about nothing. He was asleep. Yeah, she went to sleep, too. But she's not going to be waking up, Ezekiel. What? Now, where did you go when you left Miss James' house? Wait, 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 wait. What you talking about? She ain't gonna be waking up. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? I, I, I don't know. I was, I had a hangover. Oh, you had a hangover? Yeah, I went home. Oh, you had a hangover. That explains everything. You went home, you had a hangover. You, hey, you, back off! Back off! Back off! Here, here. No, no! Let me in! Get out of here! Get out of here! We found ourselves using the handheld camera quite a bit because of Scott Sakamoto's ability to, uh, smooth uh, shoot with such a steady hand his uh camera work is kind of like a hybrid between a steady cam and a um and a handheld shot it has it, it, it doesn't float like a steady cam which i'm not really that crazy about but it has just a tiny bit of the heartbeat just enough to let you know that there's someone you know that it's not new technology or whatever i had seen dead bodies before Cold, hard, still as concrete, their eyes wide open, staring up at nothing. But not Coretta. I could still feel her heartbeat. Hey, Ezekiel Rollins. Hold on, Ezekiel. Somebody in the back would like to talk to you. Look, I ain't got time right now. We had two of these limousines. We had one for the exterior shots, and we had another rigged up for the interiors so that we could save time. Because car work is always more, more time consuming almost than anything. Listen, if you wanted to hurt you, it would have happened already. Come on. 
get in. Our chauffeur is also a boxer. Had a lot of fighters on the set. Originally in the book, uh, the character of Matthew Terrell was Matthew Turan. Uh, and we changed the name because it sounded Middle Eastern and didn't make a lot of sense that he'd be running for mayor. In the book, he had already lost the um, mayor, mayor's election. He was, or had already been forewarned not to even uh, contest it because of his pedophilia, which is something we will observe later. But we felt that it was important that this particular plot line play itself out in the story rather than being something that had already taken place. Which is, again, just part of that translation from literature to cinema, where the conflict is not within characters, but it's between characters. When I heard that the police had a suspect, I got out of bed immediately, personally, because of my concern. Was there anyone with you, Mr. Rowan? Maury Chagin is a uh, Toronto-based actor, Canadian. A young lady named Daphne Monet, perhaps? Nobody. Of course not. I mean, why, why would... Why, why would you... Why would you tell someone whom you've only just met? I mean... You can't trust me, Mr. Rollins. There's nobody else there. I believe you. Uh, can we drop you off at your... No, I mean... I decided to go retro with the music with Parlez Moi d'Amour because I felt that someone like, more, like Matthew Terrell would actually be listening to a station that might have some yeah. European imports or whatever. And uh, it added a little bit of dimension to the film. One of the things that I wanted to avoid was making a period piece where all the cars, that takes place in 1948, where everything's from 1948. All the cars in 1948, all the clothing in 1948. In truth, having just come out of a war, it was a humble time. And there had not been construction of automobiles, et cetera, from 1941 to 1945. So most of what you will see, except for the people who are rich or who are like easy and who just, you know, just got, came into, came back from the war with some money saved up and bought himself a flashy car, will be driving cars from the 30s. And the houses go all the way back to the turn of the century. So that there is some depth in what we see. As you know, if you drive down the street now, you know, you'll see cars going all the way back to the 60s and buildings going all the way, you know, back to the 20s and 30s. Very little of what we see is spanking brand new. Jennifer Beals, who plays Daphne Monet, lowered her voice for the role, made a trip to uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, so that she could uh, 
research Daphne Monet's hometown and felt that uh, since she was a little reminiscent of Linda Darnell and uh, Veronica Lake, that she could, uh, she would might serve the character better to lower her voice a little. That was her own choice. Denzel and both uh, Denzel and uh, Don Cheadle went to the Houston in the Fifth War to research their characters because that's the point of origin for them. The woman who just walked past in the in the black is uh, Carol Kravitz, the editor. And Gary Frutkoff was the gentleman, production designer. And a friend of mine, the, the, the bellhop, is uh, Dr. Ricky Hendricks, who kept checking his beeper because he's, all, he's an obstetrician who delivers babies. <laughs> and a woman was uh, in labor. This was shot at the, um, at the old um, Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire. And it's, it's empty now. And we uh, took one of the suites, and, which was uh, vacant and kind of uh, disheveled, and we dressed it. You know, I had to pay Coretta not to tell you where I was. Oh, she got you too. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we try to do, even with our, our cooler colors, like the blue that Daphne Monet is wearing, we wanted to mute that so the primary colors wouldn't stick out, wouldn't stand out. We, did, we desaturated all of our colors to try to control the palette so there was a worn texture to the movie, mainly with earth tones of browns and greens and golds, orange. Please, straight up. So how well did you know Coretta? She was a very close friend. So maybe you know why she got killed? Why would I know that? She said she was a very close friend. She knew about you and Frank. Maybe somebody wanted to keep that secret. That's Bull Moose Jackson singing. Easy, if you're thinking that Frank had anything to do with Coretta's death, and obviously you don't know very much about him. Jennifer Beals approached me to play Daphne Monet, called me on the phone, and I was concerned about uh, her playing the role, not because I did not uh, trust her acting ability, but because uh, I knew that she was uh, part African-American and I was concerned that it would tip off the um, secret that we were holding in the film. And I know her husband, Alexander Rockwell, or her former husband, he's a director as well, and I felt, oh, I got to talk to her. I got to do this for Alex. And so I met with her, and she came in, and she knocked out. She knocked the part out. Just was incredible. She was head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, and I still fought it in my head. I was still concerned about that. But it came down to the fact that she just simply won the role. She was just the best there was. Easy. The real reason I called you is because I'd like you to drive me to Todd's house. Beg your pardon? Well, you found me, and now I want you to take me to Todd Carter's. Why don't you call Todd Carter? Have him send for you. Well, I have to go someplace else on the way. Someplace that I don't want Todd to know about. There's a man named Richard McGee, and he lives up in Laurel Canyon. 
And he delivered a letter of mine to the wrong place. And now I need to make arrangements to get it back. At 4 o'clock in the morning. Must be a pretty important letter. Originally, there was a romantic uh, connection between Easy and Daphne, and it actually even started to play in this scene in the book, as we will remember. But because we had shifted the focus of the film, we had shifted the focus of the uh, um, of the uh, of the film from um, a, um, from an objective perspective to a subjective perspective, telling it through the eyes of our character Easy Rollins. It was important for us to um, keep it subjective so that we discover the mystery through his eyes. And also, because in the book she had already made the determination to leave Carter, we decided that it was important that she have a problem that she's working out throughout the, uh, the film. And that meant, uh, and, and what that problem, what she was trying to do was to get some information uh, that would allow her boyfriend, Todd Carter, to be able to go into the mayor's race. He had dropped out of the mayor's race because of blackmail against her. Um, and if we had had a romantic connection between the two, then it would have invalidated that relationship and would have totally uh, destroyed her character. I was in the middle of the night in a white neighborhood with a white woman in my car. No, I wasn't nervous. This is on Mulholland Drive, where we shot this. And this is in Laurel Canyon. Who was this guy, Richard McGee? Just parked behind that car. The Life of Riley is playing on the radio, and probably it would not be on at 4 o'clock in the morning. But we decided to take some dramatic license and add that ambiance because we felt that it still enriched the period. And, you know, whether people literally picked up on the fact that a radio show might not be playing at 4 a.m., we felt that it was worth taking some dramatic license. Now, if you'll notice, uh, Jennifer's hairstyle is different here uh, because we had a different hairstylist. Uh, this was her original hairstyle, and we weren't satisfied with that, and then we changed it. And so this is really the only scene that you will see her appearing with this particular style of, of, uh, of hair.
A lot of people have likened the look of our film and the subject matter, et cetera, to Chinatown, and we never thought Chinatown. We thought Howard Hawks' Big Sleep more so as a prototype. That's a 1933 Cadillac, I believe it is. Uh, and the gentleman who owned it was very, very, uh, very uh, protective of that car. I couldn't even sit on it. Hey, who's that at the door? It's him. Oh, yeah? You fought in your? The heavy playing uh, just opposite Denzel here is Nikki Corello, who's a good friend of mine. Nikki's from uh, New York. Where you been this time of morning, Asian? Hey, I went to see a girl. Why? You don't get none all bright? I didn't come here to play a nigger. One of the things we wanted to do with this scene is by having it in the house, by violating the house, was to have, you know, this in the middle of, of, of the, this, the um, quiet, uh, serene surroundings of a peaceful neighborhood, to have violence happening right in the heart of it and with the, nobody knowing anything about it. We're going to underscore that in a moment when you'll see a milk truck pull up in the background and the delivery man will go in and go about his route and not uh, unaware that someone is uh, under threat right across the street from them. The hope was that uh, it would create mystery in our own minds from when we travel through peaceful neighborhoods. There was a dead man up there while I was looking at it, she took off. Come on in. Sit down. Something about the stark sunlight that makes it more dangerous to me. What you do, take his car? Huh? McGee. Yeah. If you can write, write down where you picked her up at. <clears throat> write it down. There's a milkman now. Nobody likes to play these demeaning kinds of scenes where you're being shoved around, and Denzel was having a hard time with this one, I can tell you. Just as Tom Sizemore was having a difficult time saying the N-word. He's got balls, you gotta give him that. Shoot him! I'm just kidding. Now, this particular scene, for some reason, we had no ambiance at all. We had to create all of this in sound effects. This is all Foley. This is all effects for this scene in the kitchen. Everything. Footsteps, the sound of the air, the... Everything. 
You find him. I will be checking in. Since Albright likes surprise parties, I had a friend of my own I wanted to invite. I placed a call to Etta Mae Alexander in Houston. Told her to get a message to her husband, Mouse. Now this scene was shot on the same day that we shot the opening scene on. It's actually the same street, except that we are taking a different angle now and we're move, we've moved uh, maybe up about half a block. We did three scenes that day. Um, and as I say, cut them in and out of the film in three different places. And I think it opens up the movie, makes it much larger, creates the illusion of a much bigger film. Catterley, Fraunfelder, and Mark Catone uh, were responsible for choreographing a lot of the background action. That's my friend Mel Winkler, who plays Joppy. I first worked with him on an uh, HBO project called Laurel Avenue. And he was, besides Denzel, was the one actor whom I hired without interviewing. I just, when I was writing the script, felt he was Joppy. And Coretta was too busy scamming Daphne, so it couldn't have been her. No, it was you, Joppy. Maybe she looked it in the phone book. I ain't in the phone book. Now, you're supposed to be my friend. Now, why in the hell didn't you tell the man where the girl was your damn self? In the first place, what the hell you mean coming up here looking all ugly like you think you're going to do something? I think I'm going to do something. That actually is not a marble top. I can't remember exactly what the, uh, the material was that we used, but uh, we were concerned about being able to, because um, we had to, after we, for different takes, we had to go in and change the top. And so we didn't use real marble. And she wanted to know something about you, so I told her. And I guess I'll give her your phone number. Where's she at, Jobby? I don't know. Don't lie to me. I'm not lying to you. Where's she running from then? She didn't tell me. Easy. Look at me. In the book, if you'll remember, Joppy had known Easy back in Houston. Known him as a child. And we tried to, in a condensed and succinct way, to convey that relationship in this scene. You know what I'm Even though we didn't have an opportunity or the time to give much backstory between them. What? We're coming up on uh, the Carter Foundation, which was uh, actually in Pasadena. Like Albright said, it's a uh, Catholic school, as I believe. You better be mixed up to the top. So that's where I was going. All the way to the top. Everybody was peeing on my head and telling me it was rain. Guess they figured I was some new kind of fool, and maybe I was. Because I was ready to start fighting back. And I believed somehow that I could live through this bad dream I was having about pretty girls. And now, for the first time, we see Easy starting to become a detective, wearing the suit, wearing the fedora. The transformation is. I wouldn't say complete, but he is definitely in the middle now of uh, his ascension. 
Originally, Denzel was interested in doing White Butterfly. That was the book that had, uh, had piqued his interest. And I felt The Devil in the Blue Dress was so much more rich, so much more interesting because it traversed so many different areas of the uh, Los Angeles uh, community. That was Jesse Beaton's mom and her aunt who just walked by, who's our producer and my business partner. Her father will walk down the stairs past Denzel in a moment. <laughs> But I thought it was important to see the genesis of this detectives. We were all in anticipation of making many of these books. So why not start with the first? The actor playing Carter is Terry Kinney, a fine New York actor. Mr. Carter will see you. Mr. Rollins. Mr. Carter. In the book, he was much more of a Howard Hughes kind of character, and we decided to bring him down into the mix a little bit more so that he had something to lose, and he was part of the plot that had to be worked out. In the book, he was a removed guy who just made decisions about things that would happen in town. We decided to make him a candidate. I'm sorry. Would you like to come in? Mr. Carr. Have a seat. Thank you. I just want some answers. Would you like a brandy? Thank you. I want to know what I got myself into. Beg pardon? Well, I want to know the real reason Mr. Albright hired me. Mr. Albright. Yeah. We also flipped the story a little bit. In the book, Albright had hired Easy, and he indeed was working for Albright. Carter had, uh, uh, had hired Albright. But we changed that and added another twist. In fact, Albright was working for Matthew Terrell. Until just now, I thought she was hundreds of miles away from here. Against Todd Carter. You say someone's looking for her. Yeah. Someone's looking for her. <laughs> Look, Mr. Carter, nothing personal, but what, what's going on between y'all? Nothing. We were going to get married. With the disheveled look of the uh, collar open and the... Uh, tie kind of open. We were trying to communicate that he was not getting a lot of sleep since his girlfriend had left. Even though he was carrying on some semblance of still being uh, under control. And we decided to make him very relaxed in his environment instead of putting him in a suit or something that looked official in a cardigan sweater. Someone who rules very casually from the shadows. It's really none of your concern, Mr. Rollins, but I am willing to pay you to find her. And this is yet another scene that deals with the okay. um, journey, the, the odyssey that Easy Rollins finds himself going through. Thousand dollars. In behind the cogs and the pulleys, where the real American dream is, exists, not on the superficial level. And whereas he was struggling to make his mortgage before, now everybody's throwing money at him. They eat at my house regularly and my father's house. That's good, Mr. Carter, and they can help us find it. No, they can't. But this was a turning point when he decided to fight back. I'll have Baxter write you out a check. Mr. Carter, why you stop running for mayor? I'll have Baxter write you a check. All right, why is Matthew Terrell looking for Daphne, too? Baxter will write you a check. I'll take care.
a tiny detail you will notice. Terry instinctively does this. Easy will put the glass down on the, on the wood and Terry will put it back on the blotter so as not to ruin his $6,000 table. So Albright had lied to me. Instead of working for Carter, he was working for Matthew Terrell. We rewrote this voiceover probably about 30 times because we wanted to keep the voiceovers at a minimum. We, and yet at the same time, they were necessary for expository information and to get you deeper inside of the characters. So I decided to kick up some dust right in Frank's backyard. We're coming up on a location that is actually the, the uh, I think it's Club Fado Do, which is a, jazz, is a uh, Latin club. That's Jessie Beaton. Uh, she plays Ramona in this, and she's always wearing leopard. She's my partner and my producer, and in all of my films, One False Move, Devil in a Blue Dress, Laurel Avenue, and One True Thing, she's always Ramona and always in leopard. She always makes an appearance. You know me, though, don't you? This is shot down on Sunset, east of um, Silver Lake Boulevard, a pool hall. And again, we searched a long time for the faces that we thought would convey the 40s. We, we, I, I cast the extras personally, because I wanted to make sure that there was that certain look, certain faces look a lot more like 1940 than others. And I even found some members of the crew. Uh, the gentleman who's buying uh, booze there was an electrician. The gentleman who was a maitre d' before was also a grip in the scene before. And a good actor, Smokey Campbell. Now we come back to the woodcutter. Again, in the book, Easy, um, at the point when he started to get immersed in that subterranean world of uh, corruption, etc., he lost contact with his home and we needed something to sh show that same kind of separation and so we used a character that wouldn't slow us down for shots because it all pays off in the end. Now this fight I wanted to make sure it was ragged. I wanted, I wanted you to see the real danger of a real fight so that it was not clean, he was not the superhero, he was somebody who was in, in real serious trouble. <laughs> One of the little little things that we added there was that change spilling on the floor just to take you inside of the fight. We did that in post-production. But it enhances the visceral, emotional response to this. Hey. You want me to shoot this son of a bitch easy? Mouse! Oh. And Denzel actually, at one point, did ask me why he couldn't win that fight. Because he felt he could take this guy in real life. God damn it, I'm gonna blow your nose No, off. wait, no, no, don't shoot him. Where's Daphne Monet, Frank? All right, look, all right, maybe you don't know where she is, but hey, we can help each other find him, man. Mouse, no! If you notice again in production design, 
This is a man's uh, home, very little furnishing. This was something that we decided upon. We knew we would be in the house a lot, and the temptation, of course, was to over-decorate uh, it. But we realized that a bachelor, you generally are not that into decorating. He would spend most of his time in the yard, making the yard look nice. And he wouldn't have a lot of money either. He was someone who was primarily concerned with picking up girls and having a good time, 28 years old. Now, this is something I came up with because I thought that this would be the most serious way to show, to introduce this character and to show you what he's capable of. You know, that he did show some mercy. He did put away the big gun for the little gun, but basically he is all business, and this is going to start the interrogation. It's a damn expensive coat. There was one take. I really wished I could have used it. There were other problems with it, but he said, easy, why are you grabbing me? He's getting ready to talk. He's getting ready to say something. Find that girl so we can get that money, huh? Hell no, we don't have to go find nobody. I done changed my mind. I don't need your kind of help, Mouse. Boy, look at you. Man, cut a damn smile in your neck. You gonna tell me you don't need my kind of help? See, this is the same shit you pulled five years ago when you killed old man never shedding them. Again, Sharon Davis's uh, wardrobe. This is Don Cheadle playing Mouse. And I'd worked with Don in my um, uh, student film, Punk. It's when I first met him. Um, at any rate, I want to di digress for a second on the wardrobe. Mouse was described in the book as being a fairly natty dresser, not really flashy, but someone who knew fashion. And so Mouse is dressed quite tastefully for the time. But at any rate, I had, I had been getting you know, a lot of pressure from the studio to, to cast a, uh, a, a name in the role of Mouse. You know, Damon Wayans' name kept coming up. Spike Lee's name was being forced down me. Uh, everybody from Samuel L. Jackson to uh, L. Delroy Lindo came in to read for Mouse. And I did not feel that Don was the guy for the role, even though I felt that he had the ability, because I, I wasn't sure that he and Denzel could look the same age, because Don was much younger. And uh, at the time, Denzel, you know, had, had, had been on vacation, had gained some weight, and wasn't really, you know, looking as young as he was looking right there. And so at any rate... Um, I was concerned about that, and I sat next to Don inside of uh, a doctor's office for about an hour while we were waiting to be seen. I still didn't get the, the thing, and then finally he called me and was not connected with this, and I just thought, God, i got to let my boy come in and read for it. And he came in, and he knocked it out, and I still was a little nervous about it because I didn't know uh, if they could be contemporaries. And Denzel said, hey, man, I'm going to be young. You just don't know, and here he is, true to his word. So I bit the bullet. And cast Don Cheadle. All we gotta do is place you in a dead man's house. I wasn't in no dead man's house. Yeah, well, you know what we could do? We could go down the station. We'll send a team over here. Believe me, they'll find something that will place you at that dead man's house. Evidence has a funny way of showing up, you know? Nah, y'all ain't got nothing on me. This is a, another major difference in the uh, this particular uh, um, kind of film noir gumshoe detective. Philip Marlowe exists in a uh, vacuum in terms of uh, wh wh who lives next door to him, where did he come from, et cetera, et cetera. And easy is in a, in a, in a definite social context. We know, we see his neighbors, we see where he lives, we know where he's been. In a lot of ways, again, it's turning the genre on its head, that he, again, is the innocent, whereas in uh, the, the Marlowe um, stories, uh, Marlowe is uh, cynical and everybody else is the innocent. 
everyone who's not hip to the game. It was all a game to them. But in the morning, they'd be playing for keeps because a white man. This was as much social realism as it was film noir. We realized that and, and decided to shoot it with that uh, in mind as opposed to trying to operate from a genre. I said earlier that we had uh, thought The Big Sleep. Actually, we didn't, we didn't think that until we saw the film afterwards that it reminded us of The Big Sleep. We decided to take it from scratch and to build it brick by brick as we went from photos and from discussions with Tak and myself and Gary Fruitcock. Again, he's about to, he's trying to save his life. He, he's uh, trying to get himself out of a serious situation, and he's got this problem to deal with as well, which just roots him more into the neighborhood. This is Scott Sakamoto on a crane, and he's got a steady cam. He's looking down on top of the car. He will step off of the crane and follow them in with a steady cam. And very athletic operator. And these are these unique courtyard apartments that I don't know where else in the country you find them, but they seem to spell LA. Easy. you want. Let me in, Junior's promise. I ain't got no time to be fooling with you now. I'm trying to get some sleep. Hey, you better go on open this door, Junior. Act like you got some sense. Oh. Go on, fool. Get out the way. We ain't got all day. I was having so much fun with this scene, I was actually a problem on the set because I kept laughing and, at different times and, and you know, and they, I even, I think, laughed on one of the takes or something. I couldn't help myself. This one's yours too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So why you killed Richard McGee? Huh? What you talking about? Ain't no time to play, Junior. I know you want to kill them. You crazy, man. Sit down, Jimmy. Tell me what happened, Junior. I don't know what you talking about. Well, the police will when they find out the fingerprints they got up in that man's house belong to you. What fingerprints? What house? Had he had you to pull that man out of John's bar the night out David Fontenot's out of New York. Stage actor, we cast him in New York. About half of, I'd say about 40% of the cast was uh, found in New York. Interestingly enough, we only spent a week back there casting and cast probably about between 35 and 40% of our leads from New York. A testament to uh, the, the, the talent that's there. Now you better tell me what happened, Junior. Maybe I'll forget what I know. Otherwise, I'm going to tell Mouse to shoot you. Because, you know, I don't like your monkey ass, and he don't like you either. Now, you killed that man. You took his money, didn't you? I don't even know who you're talking about. Didn't you? You just had to rob him, didn't you? I didn't. I didn't touch nothing in that man's house. <laughs> God damn, Junior. Mm-hmm. Sit down. Mouse was someone whom, when Walter Mosley and I talked about this book, we both had recollections of people like that. Guys who, you know, there was always someone who was related to someone who uh, was a mouse-type character. And you would see that guy once in a while at your dinner table, and it was a frightening thing. But it was also exotic and interesting. And whereas at the time the other relatives would give you a nickel, a mouse would give you a quarter. No, to deliver a letter. I give it to Coretta to give to her the next morning. Yeah, well, you better be telling the truth, Jimmy. Come on, let's go. I'm telling the truth. I ain't killed nobody. Right, that man was alive when I left. I, I, I ain't killed nobody. The letter that was so important to Daphne had worked his way over to the other side of town to do Pre's sister's house in Compton. I hoped. Interesting. Uh, 
This was the original song that I was playing, but we actually went for a score here. Instead, this is, uh, um, I believe this is Muddy Waters. No, it's not Muddy Waters, it's Howlin'. It's, it's either Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf, but we did not use this in the film, that particular piece of music. Yeah, cops just let me out today. Sister going to work and I ain't feel much like talking. Compton, which we hear so much about from NWA, et cetera, and all the rappers, um, was a country town at that time and still bears a lot of the, uh, the trappings of the country because that is where a lot of the people who came out of Texas and Louisiana went, went to, straight to Compton. A lot of the streets were not paved. You notice horses on the street, et cetera. And there are places in Compton even today where you see cows and chickens in the yard. Very much a rural kind of a environment. This was actually in Piru, where we shot it. Say anything to you about the letter she was keeping? Letter? What kind of letter? From that white girl? No. Now, the song that you hear on the radio is the only song that does not uh, that is anachronistic, that is uh, a, a more modern song. That's the Reverend James Cleveland, and it was uh, recorded in the 60s. But because it was a uh, spiritual song and played so low as a source cue, we decided we would uh, put it in the film. I thought that it worked well uh, uh, as a religious song. She probably introduced Corella to one of them guys she knew. She probably came over to the house and these are not pigtails, actually. This is chicken because uh, Don is uh, doesn't eat uh, pork or beef. You imagine it? My baby fought him. Fought him because she wouldn't have nobody but me. Now this was changed dialogue. Uh, this was because we had to condense the Dupree character in those scenes down to a kind of a. Um, something very concentrated. I changed the dialogue so that we could get the sense of, of this man who had been played on by his, his, his girlfriend, uh, though they had a lot more time to do it in the book. We had to do it with a couple of lines. And we ran the risk of being so uh, too obvious, but I thought the actors played it quite well. Don't even let me go near the house. That's the only thing I got left that belonged to her. The Bible. I know it was a sign because she's so religious. And Jannard Burks, who's playing Dupree, every time he did this scene in, in auditions, in rehearsals, in every take, the tears, his own, every time. All right. All right. Now this again um, was not in the book. Uh, the whole idea of there being pictures of Matthew Terrell, this was something that I added in the screenplay. Uh, and this of course has been what they've been looking for all the way through, the letter that Daphne Monet had gone up to Richard McGee's house to find. And we were able to, at the same time that we uh, 
you know, we're, we're, we, were, we were able to make a social comment on uh, the hypocrisy of some of these people and their religion. We'll do it again toward the end of the film. Much younger Matthew Terrell and children. Innocent, helpless, naked children. I was under a lot of pressure to get rid of this scene, not to use this scene. They felt that uh, th that uh, this scene didn't add anything to the movie, that it wasn't moving the, the story forward. My feeling was that it was a centerpiece of who Mouse was in a lot of ways, that he was... This, this, this in a lot of ways was, took the responsibility because I was concerned about a character like Mouse being too attractive. And I wanted to make sure that we could see just how dangerous he could be, even though it's comedic. We wanted to make sure you realize that this man is out of control. And this spells their relationship. This has been their relationship all their life. Easy finding a way to somehow be friends with a rattlesnake. If he ain't out, you better tell him. I will. Trust me. I'll tell him. Where you going? That's right. That's Don Cheadle. Where you going? That's an ad lib line. The pictures was eating at my pocket like a cigarette burn. Albright had killed for those pictures to get him back for Matthew Terrell. He had killed Richard McGee, who had sold the pictures to Daphne. Time was running out. But I had some unfinished business with the girl. She had called that afternoon, and all I needed was for her to call again. This was a fusion of the book and uh, the screenplay, actually. In the book, Daphne Monet does appear in, in Easy's house, but he's not waiting for a phone call from her. I'm sorry, I broke into your house and... Don't be angry with me. Elmer Bernstein's music at this point um, has a kind of a, you'll, you'll hear an almost Eastern European kind of a sound with a swirling kind of a, a feeling, which in a lot of ways symbolizes for us the kind of serpentine character of uh, Daphne Monet. And you need me to help you find him. I already got the pictures, Daphne. This was one of our more difficult nights, as I remember. Um, we didn't have many nights where we shot overtime, and I don't think that this went particularly long. But I remember that it was difficult. Just being cramped in that space all that time. We'd been in the house probably for about a month at this point, shooting. Matthew Terrell might have something to say about that. 
All right, then I'll pay you for them. I'll give you $1,000. You gave Richard McGee seven. And then I'll give you seven. Damn, what does Terrell have on you, girl? <laughs> Nothing. You want the money or not? No. No, I got two murders hanging over my head. Unless I give the cops a killer by tomorrow morning, I'm going to jail. Now, who killed Coretta? I don't know. It was because of them pictures she was killed, or wasn't it? I don't know. Your boyfriend, Frank Green, killed her to bring you them pictures, didn't he? Now, this is the obligatory um, film noir scene where the whole plot is explained. <laughs> it's something that we felt we could get away with because we were, in many ways, um, trying to recapture the genre. We set out not to make a derivative of a 1940s film noir. We decided to try to do this, the thing itself, except we knew we would have to do it in color. Frank is my brother! What? Our mother is Creole. We have different fathers. Mine is white. And that's what Terrell has on me. And so far, I've been able to keep Frank out of this. Who killed Coretta? It was an accident. Who killed her? She threatened to sell the pictures to Terrell. This was the scene that we used to audition the actors for Daphne Monet. This scene and the scene inside of the hotel room were the two scenes that we used. Because they offer the most emotional range and the most shifts and turns in the character. Son of a bitch. Get her, Sharif. Now, when we shot this, I had a big debate inside of my head as to whether or not I wanted to do a lot of quick cuts on the fight between Easy and between the other henchmen, and I felt that it would be much more ominous if we were following the action of Daphne and DeWitt Albright and then come back only for the last blow on Easy Rollins. And there was, of course, a big debate as to whether or not his face would swell up immediately or whether it would take some minutes before the big lump appears on his jaw. Surprisingly enough, Denzel likes these kinds of scenes better than anything, probably. He's very physical. Very physical. Very adept at, at, at stunt work. I woke up mouse and Fight scenes, especially. Now, this scene coming up where they come down the street, this, this probably reminds me more of a 1940s movie than anything else in the movie. Um, it was, we had a big debate about how to shoot this. I basically did prevail. Uh, I, Tak and I were talking about what to do, and it was, it was a little, little bit dicey because we had to have Tak run across the street with the camera, and I didn't want a steady cam. I wanted there to be that urgency and for there to be some traffic going. So it was a really athletic thing that he had to do and at the same time hit his marks and then hold the, hold the uh, characters in the frame. This is straight out of a James Cagney movie. Or at least that effect. Again, we tried to keep depth, where you can see the cars in the background. That's actual. Those are real cars. I thought that was very important, and it provided a big challenge for Tak, because he had to balance the light from interior and exterior, especially during the day. But I wanted to be able to see that world outside and all those real cars passing by to give it depth, to make sure that this, these people existed in a broader context and a world that was surrounding them. 
Down the street, if you'll notice, on the theater, we passed it already, but it was a Regency theater, and one of Oscar Michaud's films was playing called Betrayal. It's a kind of a subliminal uh, effect to symbolize Joppy's character and what he represents to Easy. Another sub-theme in the film. Where is it? It's in Malibu on Route 9. Make a right turn to Alex. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, you sure this is where Albright's gonna be, right? I guess Don't so. be guessing, Joppy. Look, he, he done done this kind of thing out there before, so I guess so. Hey, easy. Man, what's done got into you? I thought y'all was supposed to be friends. He killed Dupree's girlfriend, Coretta. Hey, hey. You lying? No. Nah. I ain't done nothing like that. Now, this was a scene that I had also added. This was not in the book. And this, again, was just simply, you know, an economical way while we're on the way out to Santa Monica, to Malibu, to uh, uh, underscore the um, unpredictability of the character of Mouse. for them pictures. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This music cue that you hear was not written for this place. But I, I wasn't crazy about the cue that had been written for it. And I listened to this and I thought, you know, there's something that counterpoints well with this. It's so ominous because it's beautiful, peaceful music. It's not, uh, and, and that makes it more ominous somehow because it doesn't hit on the head and doesn't try to anticipate the action. It's much more foreboding, I felt. This is out at uh, Disney Ranch, which was freezing. And Denzel is going to be in a T-shirt in a while. Oh, man, come on. The girl is lying. She told you I killed her. These were some of the longest nights that we worked on the film. I, I mean... Easy, I'm just going to go on the shooter now, okay? No, don't shoot him. Don't shoot him. The cabin that Easy finds himself coming upon, we built this cabin out at uh, Disney's ranch. And we built it to our specifications um, specifically for this gun battle. so that we could silhouette our characters easily off of it, so that we could also stage our, our action, our fight scene, um, choreograph it in the way that we wanted to, so the angles lined up for uh, Mouse to come in the back when he does come with his gun to save the day. Again, I, I opted to shoot this without looking inside and, and being with the characters when um, uh, the, the torment was going on inside. I thought it was much more ominous rather than actually seeing what was happening. But one woman, three guys, the imagination can run wild with what could happen.
And again, we're only going to suggest the action once again when he takes the hot poker from the fireplace. One can just imagine what he intends to do. I wanted to keep the action raw. I wanted the violence to come from the emotion, from the, um, the invasion of humanity more so than from any slick and choreographed fight of a gun, gun battle. I wanted the fear to be evident. And I had seen something like this where the character with a bullet in his neck actually walks some distance before he collapses. I had seen a man shot six times in the head down on uh, La Brea uh, and 21st Street and watched him get a small caliber pistol and watched him get up and walk away, only to find that he was down in a uh, driveway two blocks away later. But it's those strange occurrences that I find myself gravitating toward. Now you're gonna hear the breathing sound of someone who, uh, where the air is escaping through the lungs. This is actually Kai Lennox, who came in to do his dubbing, but had a horrible cold, and gave us a great uh, uh, <laughs> sucking air wound from the chest. If you'll notice the sounds, you'll hear all the sounds going out, the crickets, birds, etc. And only after he's passed do you hear them start to come to life again. I used the same device in One False Move at the point when the killers were all killed, when everyone was dead, and it's basically that nature stops to observe the passing of one of its own. Even a bad guy, basically, we stop to uh, give the respect to the passage of life so as not to take it so lightly. Can you walk? Especially given what we're about to do a couple minutes from now, where we really tread the line between, um, I guess you could say comedy and, uh, and drama. Wake up, your mouse. Where'd you be? Uh, you're you right there. The truth is that I actually felt, um, I was a little concerned about the message of this scene, but I w it was irresistible when I wrote this line. I just had to use it. That's right. Well, I did, and I just, I, I choked it. What? Well, how am I going to help you out if I'm, if I'm back here fooling around with him now? 
Easy, look, if you ain't wanted killed, why'd you leave him with me? This was the line that I had some trepidation about. I felt, I wonder if it's becoming too humorous. But then again, Mouse was there to serve as the alter ego of Easy. He was not our lead character. He was not our statement of the film. And he represented the fear. He represented the person that Easy could become, but had somehow managed, even through all of this, to avoid. You think you're gonna have trouble with that dude, Frank? I can just run by and kill him and take that evening train to Houston. Nah, Mouse. You sure? Okay. All right. Oh, look here. Now, I'll cut you in for half, because I know you was too big a fool to take your chef from that white girl yourself. All right. Hey, man, look. If you need somebody to run them streets with you again, just give me a call, because you know how to put some money in the nigga's pocket. Mouse is a character that has become so cynical that he is almost pure in his guilelessness, in his, in his, he's so unaware of who he is morally, so comfortable with his place in immorality. And it astounds easy. The news was that I didn't tell him. And then Terrell threatened to go public about my mother. Now this was shot um, Actually, up at the uh, um, Ambassador Hotel, we rocked the car. We decided to create the background. I never do that, but I felt in this film we could get away with it because they had always done it in all the old film noirs. And in fact, uh, uh, Coppola does it in Godfather 1 when they come from the meeting with uh, all of the mafia heads. Daphne had gotten the money out of a locker at the YWCA. In some ways, we decided to use the observatory because it's, it, besides the fact that it uh, was a, a remarkable, uh, uh, that it was an, besides the fact that it was an incredible um, set, it, it, it evokes Oz somehow. It evokes the uh, coming to the, to the end, coming to, um, uh, to, 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 that, to that destination point where the man that controls all the buttons operates from even a rich white man like Todd Carter was afraid to cross it. Walk away, you! Wait. Wait. We had to wait three hours to shoot this scene because there was a reggae concert going on down in uh, the uh, Greek theater that night. the $800 that I owe you. And thank you for protecting her. You have some pictures. The primary theme in this film had to do with a man overcoming fear, a man coming into his own, someone who believed in the American dream as he understood it, working an eight-to-five job, losing that job for some reason that is unfair, and then through desperation, making a pact with a member of an underground, underworld, and then somehow successfully navigating through those subterranean waters and coming out on the other end with the understanding of being a stronger capitalist. I won't work an eight to five anymore. 
I'm going in business for myself. Mr. Rollins. That, to me, was the main theme of the film. I do love her. The premise that we used was courage leads to freedom. This, the shot we're about to see on Jennifer Beals, where we see the receding Todd Carter character in the background, where we rack focus in front here, just a hint of sadness will work its way through a stoic face just at the end. She saves it, just a bit. Very subtle performance. You want me to walk inside? This house was actually only two blocks away from Easy's house uh, in terms of uh, where we, were, you know, where they were located in reality. This was part of Jefferson Park as well. In the book, it actually is uh, someplace, I believe, in uh, Watts. I dropped her off at her brother's apartment, a fourplex on Denker Street. She had told me a story on the way home like a sinner who wanted to confess. Her name was Ruby Hanks from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And I suppose all she really wanted was a place to fit in. A few days later, my conscience got the best of me, and I went by her place to bring back my half of her money. I was kind of excited about seeing her again. But when I got there, she and her brother had picked up and gone. If you'll notice, shoe-in is misspelled. It should be S-H-O-O hyphen I-N. But our prop master uh, made a mistake, and there we were, and I needed a newspaper. And people usually give you the benefit of the doubt and think there's some hidden meaning behind the misspelling of the word. But I'd be lying to you if I said that there was. Find a job yet? I ain't studying no job, Odell. Studying no job? How you gonna live? I got a little money saved up. I'm investing some. Real One of the things that we decided to use in that final scene, where you see the police officers drive by, comes from in his own neighborhood, where they know that he's connected to those killings. Comes from an experience, some experiences that I that take me back to when I was a kid, where my older brother, who used to hang out with some of the unseemly uh, kinds of characters would tell me, would point out murderers to me who walked down the street who hadn't been caught for crimes that they'd committed. And it was a commonplace thing in the black community at that time that black-on-black -black crimes were not prosecuted. And so this is how easy, after having been ID'd, having been seen by people in Joppy's bar, can exist in the neighborhood. And if you know anything about the books, you realize that as he stays, as the books progress, it easy becomes even less and less of, uh, of, 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 of a welcome um, presence in that community. And we were looking forward to seeing that deterioration with the subsequent films that we hope to make. And here's where the woodcutter pays off for us. He has served as someone who has reminded us of the neighborhood. Now he is a rallying point for all the neighbors 
who he has created mischief for. He's someone who everybody kind of, a pest, but if ever, anything ever happened to that man, everybody would be upset. And it gives us the opportunity to gather the people together and to see what it is that this man has won by coming out the other end, scoping the neighborhood. And it also is a kind of a bittersweet, uh, nostalgic view back at what South Central looked like back in the 40s and the early 50s, and even on into the 60s before the gangs would take it over and it would lose its innocence. I thought about what Odell had said about friends, and it made sense to me. Odell goes to church every Sunday, so he would know. Later on, he challenged me to a game of dominoes. Now, what are you going to do that for? You're going to see a little boy run down the street with a rifle in his hand. That's Denzel's little boy. That's John David on the right, crossing the street, now going to the left. And I sat with my friend on my porch at my house. And we laughed a long time. Tom Sizemore, who played uh, DeWitt Albright, of course, has just appeared in uh, Spielberg's uh, Saving Private Ryan. And uh, as I say, he gained about 20 pounds for this role. Renee Humphrey starred in another film, as an independent pro uh, film that she did. Um, Smokey Campbell, you might have seen in Baghdad Cafe a couple of years earlier. Catterley Fraunfelder and Mark Catone were two. Mark Catone is now a first AD, but Catterley Fraunfelder and Mark Catone are pretty much universally re recognized as the best in the business. Scott Sakamoto, one of the best uh, operators you're going to find, very athletic. Tony Brubaker, a friend of mine from the old days, cowboy, stuntman, was our stunt coordinator. Doug Schamberger was someone we picked up in our repertory of, play of people who worked along with Dwayne uh, and, uh, and Ken Siegel in sound. Moonstar Green, uh, part of our uh, editing staff. Carol Kravitz, who edits all my films. We've known each other all the way back since the AFI when we were uh, directing fellows together there. It's the, this was our third film together. We've gone on to do one more since then. Eric Oliver, I worked with his brother Jono Oliver in One True Thing uh, in the second capacity as well, second uh, AD. And that's Ronald Dellums, who's uh, the, Ronald, the son of the Senator Ronald Dellums, who worked with us as a PA on the set. We had a soundtrack that came out with all of these uh, great 1940s tunes on it. Uh, this is Chickaboo that you're listening to right now. West Side Baby, of course, was T-Bone Walker. Ain't nobody's business, you'll remember, Jimmy Witherspoon. And of course, a couple by Duke Ellington. Hop, Skip, and Jump, and Good Rockin' Tonight with both huge hits, rock and roll kinds of hits back in 1948. And Blues After Hours was kind of a funky little, uh, almost R&B kind of a song as well. Parle Moi d'Amour was from a, maybe about 20 years earlier, originally, I believe, recorded by Edith Piaf. Certainly was recorded by her. I'm not sure if it was originally recorded by her. 
And round midnight, we know Thelonious Monk, very famous piece. I guess that was Lloyd Glenn who did Chickaboo. All in all, it was a great experience going into the world that Walter Mosley created of Central Avenue in 1948 Los Angeles. Um, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to, to realize this project. It was something that we first began to track in 1990, came to fruition in 1994, and I hope you've enjoyed the fruits of our labor here. I'm Carl Franklin, talking about our film, Devil in a Blue Dress.